The title of today's message is, What in the World is God Doing? I don't know how many times you've asked that question. I know I ask it from time to time. We certainly won't answer all of it, but we'll take a look at today from Acts 14. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of the second verse of Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I think we'll see some of that played out in the passage we're looking at today. Today's passage is a continuation of Luke's travel log. It's a journal of the journey of Paul and Barnabas that they started in Acts 13. This has been called the first missionary journey. This is the first journey that Paul has taken. Luke did not have pictures or slides, so he used word pictures to share that journey with us. This is not a vacation journey. This was a working journey. Uh, The total journey over sea and land covered about 1,300 miles over probably about two two years. So we're looking at that period of time and that distance in these two chapters. But as I said, it was a work. It's not a vacation. It was a working trip. But it's not so much about what Paul and Barnabas were doing, but about what God was doing. And we will see that. What I'd like to do is, for those of you who like the uh, geography, would like to give you a picture of, uh, that you can have in your mind of where they were. So uh, I'm not expecting you to see the details of all of this, but just to get an idea. So there's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Down here is Jerusalem in the land of Israel. And up here is Antioch in Syria, which is where Uh, Paul and Barnabas started from. They were sent out from there. Uh, In Acts 13, we we saw about this, and uh, this is a blow-up of it so we can see a little bit more where we are today. So from Antioch, they went to the island of Cyprus. That's where the governor of the island came to faith in Christ. Uh, Their second stop was they left, when they left Cyprus, they went to Perga in the region of Pamphylia, and from there went to, and this can be confusing, to Antioch. I thought they just left Antioch. Well, they went to Antioch because there's also an Antioch in the region of Pisidia. So you'll often see it in the scriptures as Syrian Antioch and Pisidian Antioch. So here they are in Antioch again. Uh, This uh, Antioch is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, So that's where this is. And the journey today that we're going to be looking at takes place in the land of Turkey Uh, What I'd like to do is just refer a bit here to Acts 13 about their time in Antioch um, from verses 48 to 51. When the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off from their feet against them. So this is what happened in, in Antioch. They, uh, there were many who came to faith in Jesus, but eventually Paul and Barnabas were forced out of Antioch by those who did not believe. So in Antioch, we can say, what in the world is God doing? Well, what he's doing is God is building his church 
in spite of all opposition, because when Paul and Barnabas left, they left many disciples behind them. Well, forced out of Antioch, and this is where we get into chapter 14 today, they go to the city of Iconium, to Iconium, and that is in chapter 14. So if you're not already there, we'll come back to the map later when we leave Iconium. Uh, please turn to Acts chapter 14 if you're not already there. We will look at uh, this journey. And as we do so, as we continue with Luke's travelogue, I'd just like to pause for a moment and just pray again uh, for us. Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, you have brought us to yourself and you have brought us to see that this word we have before us, this written word, is not the word of men, but it is the word of God that does its work in us. And so I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, use your word to do your work in us, your people this day, that you may transform us into the image of Christ and make us wise in life in this world. And so we entrust this time to you this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are in Iconium. Verse 1, it says, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel. This is part of Paul's normal pattern when going to a city. He often goes to the synagogue first. And here we find that he's talking to two groups of people. There are Jews and Greeks, or also known as Gentiles. Jews, just to make sure that we're on the same page, were people physically descended from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, who was also known as Israel. They had the scriptures. They had God's revelation to them. They had an understanding of who God was. Then the Gentiles, that's everyone else, which is most of us here today. People from various ethnic backgrounds and religious practices. It's important to know that there was a big social and theological divide between Jews and Gentiles. There was interaction between them as necessitated by normal life, by living together, having to cooperate at some level for survival and for business. But they largely kept to themselves with their own cultures, their own beliefs, their own customs with very little or no mixing. But let's look what happens when the gospel of Jesus comes to the people of Iconium. The first thing we're gonna see is that Jesus actually unites people and he does so in one of two ways. First, if you look in verse one, it says, when he came into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks believed. Jesus brought together people who were at best strangers to each other and at worst enemies of each other. And this is part of the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? We are so divided. We are so divided by race, ethnic background, demographic, socioeconomic status, politics, ideologies, religions, worldviews, language, and the list goes on and on. But the beauty of the gospel is that God in Jesus is bringing people not only back into relationship with him, but also with one another, overcoming the divisive effects of sin by forgiveness and reconciliation. And we see that where the gospel goes, reconciliation follows. Restoration of relationship follows. But also, 
If you look in verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Jesus not only brings Jews and Gentiles together in peace and reconciliation by his grace, he also brings Jews and Gentiles together as they are united in defiance and opposition to his grace. People who normally have with each other become united in their opposition to Jesus and to his grace and to his followers. People who are often opponents become friends against a common enemy. Don't we see that? That's the origin of the saying, politics makes for strange bedfellows. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Politics makes for strange bedfellows. So if we can be totally opposite and have very different opinions, but if we have a common enemy, we suddenly find ourselves in the same space together against that enemy. And that's what happened here with Jews and Gentiles who rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They become united in their defiance and opposition to his grace. So Jesus not only unites people, but let's look at verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Jesus also divides people. The people of the city were divided. Some of the sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Some with the Jews, that is those who had rejected the gospel and had turned away, and some with the apostles, those who had accepted the gospel and were following the teachings of the apostles. So the people of the city, of the city were divided. Those who rejected him opposed those who accepted Jesus and the gospel. So Jesus united people who were previously enemies, but then he divided people into those who follow him and those who reject him. And those who reject him became active persecutors of those who love him. It was true then. It's true today. We should not be surprised as we as God's people become ostracized and opposed in the public square. Well, let's see what Paul does and Barnabas does in the face of this division. Now, I don't know about you, but if I faced opposition... The next sentence about my life would read, so he left as soon as he could. What does it say here about Paul and Barnabas? The Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they remained for a long time. They remain for a long time. There's something going on here that we're going to come to later and just say what is going on here. But it does say that while they remained, they spoke boldly for the Lord. It starts to give us a clue as to why they stayed. They're doing, they're, this is not for them. This is for the Lord. They spoke boldly for the Lord about Jesus and about his resurrection. And it says, if you look at, in verse 3, not only speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God was giving witness to the truth of the gospel by allowing signs and wonders to be done by them. This verse defines for us both the source and the purpose of these signs and wonders. You see through the book of Acts in particular, lots of miracles that are being performed by the apostles. And here's one place where it defines for us what the source and the purpose are for these things. The source is that God is granting these signs and wonders that could be done. See, Paul and Barnabas were messengers. They were not miracle workers. We like to focus on the miracles and say, oh, they were miracle workers. No, they were not miracle workers. God is the miracle worker. They were messengers. 
But what about the purpose? The purpose is that God was bearing witness to the message of his messengers. So Paul and Barnabas are not miracle workers. They are messengers. God is bearing witness to his message through his messengers by these miracles. So in Iconium, we can say, what in the world is God doing? Well, God is building his church in spite of all opposition. There was steady opposition, but God is building his church. And then it says in verses 5 to 7, when they learned that the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers were going to mistreat them and stone them, when they learned of that, they fled and they went to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. When they became aware of the threat of bodily harm, they did leave. Let's go back to the map. So here they are at Iconium. Uh, as they leave Iconium, Luke says they went into Lystra and Derby, and we're going to see first that they went to Lystra, which is just a little south, maybe about 10 miles south of where they were in Iconium. So let's talk about Lystra, and then we'll come back to this later as Luke's travel log continues. So they go to Lystra, this new city, and Luke starts right off in verse 8, that at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And while Paul is speaking, Luke records it for ways that we don't understand. Paul was able to look at him, and Luke says that he, Paul was able to see that he had faith to be made well. And as he saw he had faith to be made well, and we don't know how, what he saw, but he saw it, he commands him to stand upright, and the man jumps up and began walking. He stands up and began walking. Now, in Lystra, which is very interesting here, unlike Iconium, the crowd is made up largely of Gentiles. In Iconium, there were Jews and Gentiles. Here, there is no mention of the Jews until later. This, this is mostly a Gentile area now. And they respond to this miracle according to their view of the world. And so what do they do? If you look at verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, the chief god, and Barnabas they called, I'm sorry, Barnabas, I got that backwards. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the messenger. Zeus or Jupiter in Roman mythology, uh, Hermes or Mercury, in, uh, if you're familiar with Roman mythology. So they assume that Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul are gods. They've been worshiping these false gods, and they assume that with this miracle, the gods have come down. And then they proceed in verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to them. They wanted to honor them with sacrifices. And here we see where Paul changes. He tailors his message to the worldview of his audience. He doesn't change the message, but he changes the approach to the message of the gospel. So for Jews, we find out in places like Acts 17, you don't have to turn there now, but he would go into the Jewish synagogues, and Luke says in Acts 17, he would reason with them from the scriptures. He would reason with them from the scriptures. He would reason about who the Messiah is. He would start and say, you know, the scriptures say that the Messiah is coming, and this is who he would be, and this is what he would look like. And then after he established that, he would then say, and Jesus 
is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. We saw this last week in Acts 13 when they went to Antioch. Paul was speaking to a largely Jewish audience there. And he tells stories from the Bible that they know. If you look back there, you don't have to do that now. But if you look back there, he told them stories from the Bible that they already knew. And he makes six direct quotes from this Bible to support his points, to support his view. Because Jews had a foundational knowledge of who the true God is and of the moral and theological truths contained in the scriptures, Paul could start there with his presentation of the gospel. He could start with this knowledge, this foundational knowledge that they had. So I was preparing this lesson. God was again faithful to, to teach me some things along this line. Uh, I was talking to an 89-year-old patient of mine a couple of weeks ago who was suffering very greatly from the infirmities of her, her aging. And as we talked about that, I asked her if she had any hope for the future in the face of her infirmities. And she said she was just hoping to die uh, because this was just too much. And then I asked her, well, what about hope beyond this life? Do you have a hope there? And she said, no. And then I used the line that I often use to go fishing with people to see what I can catch. And that is, you know, that's why I'm looking forward to heaven. I am looking forward to heaven because it's a place where we're going to get new bodies. There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness. All of this is going to be behind us. And she said, well, that sounds nice, but Messiah has not come yet. Clue number one, who am I talking to? I'm talking to a Jewish person. I was not aware of that at the time, uh, but she, she showed her hand. So having this lesson ringing in my ears, I then shifted my approach. And I said, well, maybe he's already come. And she said, no, he can't have come because the world is such a mess. And I said, well, maybe he came once to be the Passover lamb for us, to die for our sins, to restore us to him. And then maybe he's going to come back again someday to then usher in his kingdom and make everything fine. I don't want to say she fell on her face and worshiped the Lord and came to faith in Christ. But this struck me as I could talk to her at a different level than I could talk to someone who did not have any kind of understanding of who God is. Her expectation of the Messiah was there. She was waiting for him to come and make all things better, and he hasn't come yet, and she's going to die without him coming. So we could focus on that. Well, in contrast, in this passage, in verses uh, 8 to 23, what we're looking at with Paul at Lystra, this is largely a Gentile audience. He's speaking to those who have little or no knowledge of the true God. And he uses a different approach. If you look at verse uh, 15 at the end of that, he says, we're asking you to turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. What does he do? He goes clear back to say, God is the creator. The God I am presenting to you is the living God who created the heavens and the earth and everything we see. He is not the dead gods that you serve who have done nothing for you and can do nothing for you. 
Not only is he the creator, but it says he did good for you in verse 17 by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Not only has he made you, but he has provided for you for all of his creation throughout time. This is what theologians call God's common grace. He makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He does good things to all regardless of their relationship to him. That's how gracious and loving he is. So he's the creator. He's the provider. And then he starts off his thing in verse 15. He says, why are you doing this? We're men like, of like nature with you. We're not God and we're not gods. We are people just like you, created by God in the image of God who bring to you the message of God. His approach was very different than it was with Jews, and I think there's a lesson there for us. He says, we bring you Jesus Christ, crucified for you, risen from the dead, who offers you forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and a meaningful life of living for the God who made you and provides for you, not a life of living for yourselves and your false gods. You know, this sounds so much like where we are today, doesn't it? In our country, in our world, we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture that is at many levels anti-Christian. There was a time when we talked to people, we could assume that people had some knowledge of God and the scriptures. We really cannot assume that any longer. There's very little knowledge of God in the Bible. So our approach to the gospel has to be more of what Paul used with the Gentiles here, not the Jews. We must seek to engage people at the level of their understanding of who God is and why the world is the way it is. We need to engage people, though. There is a living God who is the creator, the sustainer, the provider. People have been created in his image, but have turned from living for him to living for themselves with the disastrous results that we see around us. And God has provided a way back to him and to the human flourishing he designed and desires which was accomplished through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Luke reports in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. With great difficulty, Paul and Barnabas were able to convince the people not to offer sacrifices. But verse 19 says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. It's very interesting, the commitment of these people. Uh, if my map reading was correct, Antioch was about 100 miles from Lystra. So these Jews, these enemies of the gospel, traversed that. Uh, they didn't fly. They didn't drive. They walked or rode horses to get there, 100 miles, and convinced the crowd to stone Paul, which they do. They stoned him and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. What a turnaround from honoring him by offering sacrifices to dragging him out of the city and stoning him, to dead, uh, stoning him and leaving him for dead. It's interesting that the crowd is mentioned four times in these verses. The crowd is mentioned four times. The crowd was easily convinced that Paul and Barnabas were gods worthy of worship. And the crowd was just as easily convinced that Paul and Barnabas were worthy of being stoned to death. What's that tell us about the crowd? The crowd is fickle and easily swayed. And the crowd is powerful and dangerous when swayed to purposes of evil. But look at verse 20. I find this incredible. 
when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and left? No, he rose up and entered the city where he had just been stoned and dragged out of. He goes back, and Luke records the next day they left for Derby. But he left behind some new followers of Jesus. Not everyone rejected Jesus. Don't miss that little, those first few words in verse 20. When the disciples gathered about him, that means there were believers that had come to faith. There were people who had come to faith in Jesus during his time at Lystra, and those disciples gathered around him and witnessed this getting up of him after being stoned. So what in the world is God doing at Lystra? God is building his church in spite of all opposition. Well, let's take a quick look at the map again to see where we are. So to Antioch and Pisidia, to Iconium, to Lystra, and their next stop is in Derby. in Derby. Now we'll come back to that map in just a couple moments. Luke doesn't say much about their stay in Derby. Their stay is in the first few words of verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. That's it. That's the only mention of what they did in Derby. We don't know if there was opposition. We don't know if there was the same kind of uh, problems they had before. But what we do know, which is no little thing, they preached the gospel and, many, and made many disciples. Many came to faith in Jesus. And so we can ask our question again, what in the world is God doing in Derby? Well, God is building his church in spite of all opposition. Well, let's go back to the map for one last time. And we're gonna come back to this in a little bit more detail. So this is where they've been. They're in Derby and Luke records that they left Derby and they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. They returned to those cities, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail. And then after that, they journeyed down to Perga, where they had made landfall earlier in the journey. They actually spent some time in Perga this time. There's no record that they spent any time the first time. And then they sailed back to Antioch from where they had started. So, for those of you who like the geography, that gives us an idea of, of where things are. But I'd like to go back to that statement again in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. Again, I find this unbelievable. They went back to the three cities where they had been so badly mistreated. What would make them go back? And if you look at the, the opposition that they faced, they faced opposition at increasing levels. At Antioch, they were forced out. At Iconium, they learned that there was harm planned against them and they were planning on stoning them, so they left. And at Lystra, Paul was actually stoned and left for dead. So Paul gets up and they go back to each of these cities. What would make him go back to places where he had been mistreated so badly? Well, I believe in the scriptures we get at least a couple clues to that. When he's telling his story to the, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 
He says this, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He was aware that he had a ministry from God. He had a calling of God on his life to be a, an agent of the gospel, just like the rest of us. So he was able to say, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. The other clue I see in 2 Corinthians 11, and I would encourage you at some time, not today, I'll give that to you for homework perhaps, to look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He states in that chapter that in addition to the opposition that he faced, the dangers that he went through, the beatings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the hunger, the thirst, the nakedness, the sleeplessness, he says he also experiences the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He had a love for God's church. He had a love for God's people that weighed heavily on him. And so he went back to these places where churches had been founded. And we're going to see what he did when he went back. But before we do that, what do you think of church when you hear the word church? The church is not buildings or organizations. The church is people. And we understand church at two levels. There's what's been called the universal church, the capital C church. That is the collection of God's people in all places and in all times. Grace Chapel is part of that universal church. We are united with this church, these churches in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. We're part of that universal church. And the churches around the world today and those that still coming in existence in the future, that's the universal church. But there's also the local church. That is the local gathering of God's people in a particular place in a particular time. And each of you are part of this local church we call Grace Chapel. This is also part of the gospel. God does not save us to live lives on our own, but to live our lives together in the community of God's people. That's what the church is. It's the community of God's people. So let's go back to our title. What in the world is God doing? Well, what is he doing? He is building his church in spite of all opposition. God's plan is for all believers to be active in the community of a local church. And when Paul went back to these new, church, these new churches that had just been founded, there were four things he did. Number one, we see in verse 22, he strengthened the souls of the disciples. Well, why do we need to be strengthened? Because we're weak. We're weak. We're frail. And there are two specific areas he strengthened them with. It says he encouraged them to continue in the faith. Well, what does that, I was going to say imply, it doesn't imply anything. It states clearly that we're prone to not continue in the faith. We are prone to get discouraged and quit in the face of hardships and opposition. And not only does he encourage them to continue in the faith, but he gives them the very encouraging news that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's not saying that tribulations are the ticket to entry into the kingdom of God. Entry into the kingdom of God, we know, is by faith in Jesus Christ. 
what he is saying is that while we are waiting for the time when God's kingdom is complete on earth, we will travel roads of hardship and difficulty. For example, struggles against personal sin, disagreements between brothers and sisters, the difficult circumstances of life, opposition from the world who hates Jesus and his followers. There are all kinds of difficulties and trials that we will face. And we must be careful not to misinterpret the, da the data. Difficulties are not proof that somehow we miss the kingdom of God. Difficulties are the evidence that we're not home yet. God's kingdom is not yet fully arrived. God is not yet finished. And God calls you and me to strengthen one another by encouraging us to continue in the faith, reminding one another that through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God, remembering that without each other we can so easily become quitters who want the easy road, and we can give up, and we need that encouragement. Well, the second thing he did, we see in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. They go back and they appoint elders, leaders, shepherds, pastors, overseers, all different words that are used for, these, for this position in the New Testament. They appointed elders in every church. And here we see every church had their own leadership called out of that church, and we see what we call a plurality of elders. The shepherding, the pastoring of each church was accomplished by more than one individual. It was not placed in the hands of one. It was placed in the hand of elders. And this is one of the passages that leads us to believe that church leadership should not be by just one person, but by a plurality of leadership. The third thing they did, if you look in verse 23, they committed them to the Lord with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord with prayer and fasting. This is a reminder that this is not about us, but it's about Jesus. He is the chief shepherd. We are his church. And this reminds us that we cannot do this on our own. Praying is an expression of our dependence upon God, that we need his help. Fasting is a posture of humility where we commit ourselves to seeking God, not our own desires and appetites. Fasting says, Jesus, you are more important to me right now than this. And I want to set this aside to focus on drawing close to you. Well, then in verse 26, they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, went down to Perga, Italia, and there they sailed to Antioch. And here is the fourth thing they do in verse 27. When they had arrived, they gathered the church together. They gathered the church together. And notice the focus. They gathered the church together to declare all that God had done with them. It's not what they did. They weren't focusing on what they had done. They were focusing on all that God had done with them. And how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You know, it's so easy for us to focus on what we have done or what we should do or what we must do. But we really need to remember to focus on what God is doing to see where he would have us work, to see what he is doing to accomplish his work in us and through us, and to see where he might open a door of faith to those around us. That's why I go fishing at work frequently. I'm trying to see if God would be pleased to open a door of faith to someone come to, to come to him. So Acts 14 shows us the birth of many new local churches. 
Churches that are part of God's universal church, very much like Grace Chapel, full of people very much like us. So what in the world is God doing? Well, in Havertown, in Grace Chapel and other churches, he is building his church in spite of all opposition. So let us strengthen one another by encouraging one another to continue on, by reminding one another that our membership in the kingdom of God will come with many hardships. Let us trust God to lead us through his appointed leadership for our local church. Let us commit ourselves to seeking and relying on God in prayer and fasting. And let us gather together to focus on what God has done and is doing and how God may open a door of faith for those around us to believe in Jesus. Isn't that our desire? To be useful in this community, to see God open a door of faith to those around us. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us as this local church in Havertown, in this place, in this time, to be able to strengthen one another, to encourage one another to continue on, to remind one another that the difficulties are not evidence that we have missed the boat, but evidence that you have not yet fully allowed your kingdom to come. Help us to trust you to lead us through the appointed leadership that you have provided. Help us to commit ourselves to seeking and relying on you in prayer and fasting. And let us gather together to focus on what you have done and how you may open a door of faith for those to believe. I pray, Father, that as we face what seem to be impossible problems and insurmountable obstacles, that we would never forget that you are building your church in spite of all obstacles opposition. And may we experience your steadfast love and overpowering grace, because it's in Christ alone that we can prevail over these things. And it's because of the power of the cross that you have purchased us as your children, that you have overcome our sin, that you have forgiven us, made us part of your kingdom, and will help us to grow in grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.